Well, go ahead and you guys know where we're at probably, uh, Hebrews, and we're on Hebrews chapter 10 tonight. That's where we'll begin. And we reviewed quite a bit last week when we were up at uh, the church at Pecan Creek, which was meeting at the school, uh, Pecan Creek Elementary, to kind of catch people up on where we're at in the book of Hebrews. But So I'm just going to briefly look over chapter 9 that we did talk about last week even. And if you look back, even just as... Uh, probably a page over from where you're at, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, uh, helps summarize the chapter really well. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Uh, so if you look at Hebrews, it does build into a climax, but then then Hebrew, the author of Hebrews begins to uh, repeat, and all, all, the same thing is kind of repeated in a slightly different way over these, these chapters that we're in right now. But one of the best ways to learn anything, uh, whether it's the ABCs or 123s or basic theology, is repetition, repetition, repetition. So hopefully by the time we get done with Hebrews, you will know this content extremely well. And you may find yourself, if you've been coming on a weekly basis, you might even say, did Trey just preach about this like last week? And it is very similar. I will be honest with you. There's a lot of similarities here. But, but in the end, I believe this will be deeply ingrained into your soul of what Christ has done for us and that he is indeed greater. He is the great high priest who has entered into the true holy place with the blood of himself, the ultimate sacrifice that brings forgiveness, remission of sins. And we've done this comparison multiple times, but here in the book of Hebrews, he's often talking about the old tabernacle, the holy of holies, the holy place on the outside, the day of atonement where the high priest would sacrifice the animals for himself, sacrifice the animal for the nation of Israel, and bring that sacrifice, the blood, back through the Holy of Holies, beyond the curtain, to bring that before the Ark of the Covenant with the smoke screen in between he and God because he was still not truly sinless. But our high priest has gone all the way through, but not just the earthly tabernacle that was built. That was just a shadow that we'll see tonight of the true tabernacle that God dwells in. And Jesus, our mediator, our high priest, the one that represents you and me, has gone all the way in and brought the perfect sacrifice. No smoke screen between he and God the Father. He is pure. He is righteous. And he brings us in there with him. So it's just beautiful that we can go before the Lord boldly. And even after this life is over, that we know that there is nothing to fear. We go immediately into his presence. Uh, chapter 9, just to look back briefly in case you weren't here last week. Uh, 27 and verse 28. 9, 27 and 9, 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting, waiting for him. So we see here that obviously everyone eventually, their body does stop working. There is a judgment and we know that to be true, but there is no fear for those who are believers in Christ, who have trusted Christ as their Savior, that Christ has taken the penalty for our sin. We have no penalty to face when we face Christ. We are facing the very one who has taken our, our suffering, he has taken our sin, he has paid the 
full price for it on the cross. He took the wrath of God and we're facing him. So this is not going to be a judgment for the believer where he analyzes every single sin you've ever committed and then punishes. That's not it at all. Your sins have been paid for. And this is the full manifestation of our salvation. At the end of verse 28, he says he has come. He has already dealt with sin. And he is coming for those who have been waiting for him. And that is us. That, are, that is the believers who have been redeemed eternally by Jesus Christ. So we rest in that. We rest in what is called the perseverance of the saints or the preservation of the saints, eternal security, because our sins have been forever paid for. We have been redeemed, bought back by Jesus Christ, by God himself. And we had nothing. Our pockets were empty. He paid the price for us, not for a day, not for a week, not for a year, but for all of eternity. So we rest in this as believers. All right, uh, well, let's move on to chapter 10. Let's have a look at it. Uh, Christ's sacrifice once for all is probably the title of chapter 10 there, even your translation. And let's look at verse 1, and we'll read a little ways. And you know me, I'll stop pretty soon. And we'll explain a little bit, go into a little bit more depth with it. But let's look at chapter 10, verse 1 to begin. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We'll pause right there and let's look back up here at verse 1. It's kind of what we just covered over there in uh, chapter 9 in 11 and 12. We're talking about how the earthly tabernacle, again the author of Hebrews, is writing to a Jewish people who still have these things going on around them. If they chose to, they could still go to not the tabernacle of Moses, but they could still go to the temple where these things were still going on, even though the presence of God was no longer there in the Holy of Holies. It was just an empty system that was going on. So they can picture all this perfectly. They can still see this reenacted if they chose to. And he is saying, though, why are they doing this? Why would we do this? There's no reason to continue because all those things, if you look back at verse 1, even uh, chapter 9, 11, and 12, said they were copies of the heavenly things. And here it says that they are a shadow of the good things that come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So we see in the Bible that God often uses, we've covered this many times, but he will speak directly through a prophet about something that is going to be done in the future. And God, and those words are recorded, and that is prophecy and that's done many times by God. We see Jesus fulfilling over 300 prophecies with his, with his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But also we see these, these types, we've covered this, and also shadows that God puts in place that point to a spiritual reality. And the author of Hebrews is saying that whole tabernacle system, Virtually every point of it, any aspect of it, is nothing but an arrow pointing to Christ. We covered a couple of weeks ago even the ingredients of the Ark of the Covenant, right? And we looked at those on an individual basis, uh, Aaron's staff, manna, the Ten Commandments, uh, 
Andrew covered the other day, the, the items that are in the holy place, and how all of these are shadows. They're just shadows coming from the real thing, which is Christ. And Christ cast his shadow throughout the past of human history. And now we look back and see all these shadows pointing to him. And that's what the author is saying. These things in and of themselves are not the reality. They cannot truly bring forgiveness of sins. They cannot truly make you righteous before God. They were shadows pointing to the one and only one who truly can. The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is God and man. And that's the main point that we'll see in, the, in this chapter. And as we've seen through the entire book of Hebrews is that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this one who has come. And he is pleading with them. If anyone is interested in going back to that system, that that system is dead. It is over. Do not go back to it. If you go back to that system, you're relying on works to get you into heaven and not the grace of God. Christ has come. And only grace can get us into heaven. Works can never get a person into heaven. It doesn't work for anyone. Uh, all have failed. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the righteousness of God. Uh, let's see. If we go on down, let's look at verse 2. Or let's look at this last part here uh, of verse 1. Uh, never make perfect. All right, Make perfect those who draw near. If you look at that. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Again, we're talking about that sacrificial system. It had to be done every single year. Many sacrifices were done by people daily, weekly, monthly. The Day of Atonement had to be done on a yearly basis. And it was put there to be repeated all of the time because it never did work fully. There was never one time where the high priest came out and said, all of our sins are totally forgiven forever now. We never have to worry about facing the wrath of God again. That never did happen. It was not a way to perfect them, to make them righteous in the eyes of God, to bring about true and lasting forgiveness. But it was to point them by faith to the one who Christ, who God would send, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Let's look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Talking about these sacrifices. If they really worked, it should have been over. Uh, they could have ceased. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So if it had have worked, if it would have worked, and if it was working, uh, it would eventually stop because all the sins would be paid for. But it never did stop. It was put into place. It was to continue on and to continue on and to continue on. And eventually you notice Israel's history that they used the sacrifices almost as a license to sin that they would do whatever they wanted to do. They would commit the, the worst sins imaginable, and it became just, a, ah, go make a sacrifice for that. And as if they were playing God, as if they had won, you know, well, as long as we sacrifice this animal and present this to God, then we're going to be okay. And eventually, God detests the very sacrifices that they are bringing. I believe I have it on the screen, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel said... Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen 
than the fat of rams. And the point here is that what God was wanting is for them to obey Him. That was the heart of it all along, is to obey, to obey, to obey, to be obedient to God. And that is still what we are to do. We are supposed to strive every day to, to honor God by being obedient to God in everything that we do. But we also know that we cannot in and of ourselves, but Christ has done that perfectly. Hence, He is the only one who is truly righteousness. But on the cross, He takes our sin he gives us his righteous status before God. So that is the, the good news of God's grace, the good news of the second covenant. Uh, ch- verse 3, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices that uh, Israel had to continually bring year after year was a constant reminder that they were sinful and that God was holy and that their sins deserved punishment. And someone's life had to end because of their sins. These sacrifices, even though they were commanded by God, in and of themselves did not remove sin. That is important to understand. Only the blood of Christ uh, removes sin fully and, uh, and eternally. So we must always keep that, keep that in mind. That is not the actual blood of the animal that was somehow removing the sin. It was covering the sin. But the only way the sin could be removed is by Christ and His perfect sacrifice. And we covered this last week. But as we now, whatever it is, 2,000 years on this side of the cross, we look back to Christ for our salvation, God's method of salvation. The Old Testament saints looked forward to God's coming method of salvation, which is Jesus Christ, understanding that all this was pointing to the ultimate salvation that would come from God when the Messiah came. Um, Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, so we're going into verse 5 here, and we, uh, we see something take place that oftentimes we take for granted, but consequently, when Christ came into the world, and before continuing on, I just want to stop right there because this is such an important point to understand about Jesus and uh, trying to just get our mind around who Jesus is. It it boggles my mind still. Even I had a conversation just yesterday with a, with a guy I was with who was trying to witness to someone and the, the guy was saying, well, Jesus was just a man and how could just a man save anyone? And, and the whole point of the Bible is that Jesus is not just a man. Uh, he is the Christ who came into the world. He is the eternal Son of God who puts on flesh the incarnation, the putting on of flesh, and is born in a manger. But again, He is not born just as you and I were, uh, but He is forever. He is eternal. And we looked at this a few chapters ago. God even has ordained Him as the eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is forever. He is everlasting from beginning to end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He has created everything. Uh, In Him we live and breathe and have our being. And this is the one who came to earth and put on flesh. So we need not limit Jesus and, and look at Him and picture Him as only a man. And this is the point the author is quickly getting to here. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world. 
Here he is talking about that incarnation. And one of the best places to look at for that uh, is John chapter 1. It just starts off so beautifully. And uh, if, if you don't mind, go ahead and turn there with me. John chapter 1. It's a little journey, but not too far over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this passage comes up quite often as I study and as I, I read because it is so important to lift Christ up for who He truly is. And if you don't understand that Jesus is also God and you think He is just a man, then you've really changed the definition of who Jesus is and there's no salvation in that Jesus because you've recreated a different Jesus. You've put a different definition to who He is. So it's extremely important to understand, as the author says here, that this is Christ who has come into the world, the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one who would bring about salvation, who is from all of eternity. Uh, John chapter 1, just read a few verses out of there. Uh, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Extremely important here. We have distinction, but yet we have unity as well. We have, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This word that he is speaking to, we eventually he gets to naming who this is, and it is the Christ, it is Jesus, but he is the word who was with God, who was God, who created everything that has ever been made. Look at verse 14. Here we have the incarnation, this Christ coming into the world. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here we have the beautiful incarnation, that God who spoke and created everything, this One who is the Word, puts on flesh and is known as Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and this is the One who saves us. How else can we be saved except through God, except through the, His method of salvation? So it's extremely important to understand as we get our minds around Jesus, as we're witnessing to other people as well, not to present a too human of a Jesus. Yes, Jesus is fully human, I understand that, but to present Him only as a human and to not present Him as deity as well, that Jesus cannot save because He's not God. He's just like you and I. He is just a man. So we'll always remember that this Jesus, this Christ, is God and is man. Let's continue on here in verse 6, or the end of verse 5 here. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now here we have, and again, the book of Psalms is loaded with prophecy as God is speaking through David primarily and others as well, and he's recording his words. And oftentimes we see that, that, that Christ uh, is, is it's, it's a bizarre, amazing, supernatural event, but he is speaking through a prophet and then later comes and fulfills this exactly. So here we have that happening as well, that Verse 7, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is Jesus who represents us perfectly. Adam, even though he was the best of all of us, 
He was born without a sinful nature. He still sinned and represented us poorly. We represent ourselves poorly every day. We still sin as well. But this one who has come in verse 7 says, I have come to do your will. Well, who does the will of God perfectly? It is God. It is the God man. It is this one who is called the Christ, the Messiah. And, and even if you look at this verse seven, he says, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, my mind immediately went to the, the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 27, when he's talking to those disciples and they're talking with him. And he says, and, and, and record, Luke records it, and beginning with Moses, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So after he had risen from the dead, he is walking with these disciples. And however he supernaturally did it, he was incognito. They did not realize exactly who was with them. And they started complaining, right, about, oh, you don't know what's going on. Well, the Jesus and the one we were, were following has died. And, and they were just, just throwing themselves a pity party. And then Jesus begins to teach them. And starting all the way back from Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we see this here in verse 7 as well. The things are written of him, me, in the scroll of the book. This is what the Old Testament is full of. It is all recordings and it's all pointing to arrows that are pointing to this one who is called the Christ. So as Jesus is walking with these disciples, he takes them through an Old Testament survey class from the very beginning all the way up and their eyes are open and then Jesus is gone. He's not with them at that moment any, any longer. But this is it. He fulfills the Old Testament and he fulfills God's will perfectly. If you remember, John the Baptist uh, did not want to baptize Jesus right away. If You might recall what Jesus says to him. He says, let's do this. We must do this to what? Fulfill all righteousness. Because Jesus came not only to go without sin, but he came to fulfill all righteousness, to do everything absolutely perfectly, to obey God perfectly. And the, the good news of the gospel, the gospel is so great, is that that's the record you get. That's the record I get. That's the, we get his record, sinlessness and perfect righteousness, fulfilling all righteousness. We can't do that. But that is the gospel of grace, that it's not based on our works. It's not based on our merit. It's based on the one in verse seven who came to do the will of God and to do it perfectly. And it's, it's, just, it's beautiful to try to get your mind around the grace of God and this good news is too good to be true. That's how, but it is true. That's what makes it so beautiful. Uh, verse eight, let's continue on. We'll, I'll read through 10. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Uh, here we see as we look back again, just kind of summarizing, and we've already kind of got made this point as we're going through tonight, but there is a, a lack of righteousness that just bringing offerings uh, to the tabernacle, to the temple, temple uh, that you could not receive. God's ultimate was, desire was for obedience, and they were not obeying. 
Uh, Adam and Eve could not. Moses couldn't. Abraham couldn't. The nation of Israel could not. You and I cannot as well. So he is, he is introducing this one. He is making the plea for this one, though, who has come, who has done God's will perfectly. And if you look at the end of verse 9, he does away with the first order in order to establish the second and here he is, the author of Hebrews is saying that system is gone. Uh, don't rely on it any longer. Do not dare go back to the temple and make a sacrifice because what you're doing is, is slapping the face of God who has come and become the perfect sacrifice. Why would you take a lamb and sacrifice it now when the very blood of Christ has been shed for your sins? Do you think you can offer something more worthy than God did himself. And here he's saying to stop. That system is gone. It is over with. Christ has come. The first order or the first covenant, as we looked at earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago, is done. And now the new covenant has come. And it's all around Jesus Christ. The good news, the gospel of grace is centered on him. Uh, this this word sanctified here at the end, uh, and by in, in verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The great benefit of being sanctified is that all those who are in Christ are truly and forever sanctified. Now, there is a process of sanctification that involves your moment of salvation and then the future glorification when we are forever made perfect and, and, and receive the full blessings of God in heaven. Uh, but in between, there is this sanctification, this process that we, we deal with daily of crucifying the flesh and, and giving the spirit power and, and overcoming sin and pursuing righteousness. And that you hope over time that the goal of sanctification is as you rely on God, as you, as you continue in his word, as you continue to to come to church as you continue to pray that there is this sanctification of, of becoming a, a practically a holier person as we're here on earth and that hopefully from the day of your salvation uh, before the end of your life that you look back and you have been becoming a holier person more and more sanctified becoming practically more holy but here he's not referring to the process he, he's referring to the proclamation that you have become you have been here in verse 10, past tense, sanctified. And what he is implying here is there, he, he knows and we know there is this process. But as far as God is concerned, there is this proclamation over those who are his, those who have been saved, who will be saved, that are sanctified, who are made holy. And we will never lose that, that we know we have this eternal uh, proclamation from God. We are considered holy not because we deserved it. Again, the gospel all goes back to Christ, right? So holy is sinless, uh, someone who is set apart for God, and that is Christ. He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely set apart for God. But, but our trust about faith, by grace in Christ, puts us with Him, and that we are holy and, and forever will be in front of God, and we will be in His presence. So what he is saying here is we have been made sanctified. We have been made holy because Christ has bore our sins. So it's a beautiful thing to realize that God is uh, on our side. 
we will not face the wrath of God. We've been set aside by Christ himself and we get his record. We get his perfect record. We have been made holy by him. That is the status that we have before God. Verse 11. I'll read a few few of these passages, uh, probably 11 through 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And here we see the contrast of the earthly priest, the high priest, the the Levitical priest who who did not have a chair in the Holy of Holies. They did not have a chair in the holy uh, place. There was no place they could do their sacrifice and sit down and rest because it was all over. No, because they were still sinning. Everyone else was still sinning. More sacrifices had to be presented and they could never just rest and say, there, it's all finished, it is done. Sins have been paid for once and for all. But Christ presents one sacrifice and it is of of more worth than all the thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices that had been made before him. And that all those combined were nothing compared to the single, he says, the single sacrifice of Christ for our sins. He brings himself the spotless lamb, the one who had never sinned, he brings his blood to God and is perfect. It is complete. It covers our sins fully, pays the price for our sins. And what does he do? He doesn't continue this sacrifice over and over and over. He sits down. You sit down when your work is done. And that's what's being implied here. The work is done. The work of our salvation is done. We don't rely on ourselves to work, 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 and maybe we'll get saved, maybe we'll not get saved. So many people struggle with that. They struggle with the, uh, he loves me, he loves me not theology. You know, if, if they worked really hard for God last week and, or today and they look at their life and I did a lot of good things, maybe he loves me now. No, we rest in this. We are forever eternally redeemed. We're forever sanctified, made holy by him. Our sins have been paid for by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ. He did all the work for our salvation and he sits down at the right hand of God. Uh, This comes directly from Psalm 110. uh, One, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, This is quoted, the author of Hebrews often quotes from the Old Testament here. But also, if you remember, this is also done uh, by Jesus himself over in Mark chapter 14. Turn there with me if you don't mind. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And by the way, some people always ask what what translation I use. I do use the ESV translation. It's a newer translation. Uh, It's a great translation more of a word-for-word translation. And if if you'd like to follow along with this translation, feel free to get an ESV Bible. I actually have ordered four, just like I have, an ESV study Bible um, that will be available at the back. I think I'll have them next Sunday. If anyone would like one, just let me know. And they're nice, leather-bound as well. And we get them for 60% off, I believe. So uh, I'll let you know more about that next week. But Mark chapter 14, look at this section here. Uh, Verse uh, I'll start at verse 16, go through 65. Uh, Jesus has been arrested. He is now before the high priest and uh, will very soon be put to death. 
they can't find anything that he has done wrong. You know, they've brought in people to tell lies about him. And even the people they brought in to tell lies can't get their stories right. And they have nothing on him at all, but they, they know they're going to put him to death. So they're waiting on just anything, trying to say something, get him to say something that they can go, aha, that's it. You deserve death now. And let's see what Jesus does here. And it ties in perfectly to this passage. Uh, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He asked him straight up, is, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one sent from God? Are you the Christ? Verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God, a right hand of power, and coming with clouds of heaven. And what did the high priest do? He tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. What happens? I mean, Jesus says one little sentence and all of a sudden it's death and they strike him, they spit on him. I mean, they asked him, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? What does Jesus say? He says, yes. He says, I am. He says, I am. He is saying here he is God. He uses the I am statement that we get from Moses in the burning bush when God presents himself and presents who, who are you? Who do I say is sending me? And God says, tell him I am. And that's what Jesus says. He says, I am. So he announces himself as God, as the one who spoke to Moses. But also, he, they will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He is alluding to this passage in Psalm 110 that, that the one will come. My Lord will say to the Lord and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. They know what he is saying here. He is claiming to be God himself. He is also, uh, if we look at Daniel chapter 7, this also alludes to that scripture as well, that there is going to be this one who is like the Son of Man, who is standing before the Ancient of Days, who receives all power. And so when he announces, this is who I am, they are furious. They are so blinded by their sin and, the, and their mythology that they don't even want to do with who God truly is or God's true salvation or the true Messiah. I mean, think about it. He had proven this over and over and over and over again. I mean, people don't just walk on water. People don't just raise people from the dead. People don't just make withered arms all of a sudden normal or leprosy go away or blind eyes open or deaf ears to hear. But Jesus could. He could do everything that was prophesied about the Messiah would do. So they sh it should have been extremely clear to them, but instead they liked their system, they liked their power, the high priest liked their position of authority and chose to kill him instead of accepting him for who he truly was. All because, uh, if we go back to Hebrews here, is because he claims that he will sit down at the right hand of power at the right hand of God. But we, we rest in this, and we know that Jesus is indeed sitting. His job is done. The work of salvation is over. And so he rests, and we rest in the fact that he is resting. Verse 14, let's continue on. Uh, for by a single, single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being 
sanctified. Again, we have this word. Now, now we're talking about the process of being sanctified, but we know we, we are proclaimed sanctified also. But this is a single offering. It is one and done. There is nothing more we can do. There is n- not anything that needs to be done. In fact, to think that we are doing something to contribute to our salvation or to remove our own sinfulness is to think less of Christ and what he has accomplished. One perfect sacrifice has perfected us. This is an important point to get your mind around, even in practical day-to-day living, that, that we rest in that sacrifice. So many people will, will often, often commit a sin, whatever that sin is, and they it's a matter of their their guilt and not understanding God's grace and they plead with God over and over and over and over and over please forgive me please forgive me please forgive me please forgive me I beg of you please forgive me God and it it becomes insatiable because how can you truly do enough to earn this forgiveness that you're asking for and you begin to put this on yourself that you're offering your apology in such a deep way that you're hoping to earn God's forgiveness. But, but we as Christians, there's nothing more we can do. That we have to understand that it's by grace that we are saved. And when we are sin, when we do sin, we confess that sin to God. We admit that is sin to God. And we pray for strength to turn away from that sin. But as far as begging for forgiveness, that's not what we are to do at all. We rest in our forgiveness because according to verse 14, a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We rest in Christ's offering, we confess our sin, and we pray for strength to turn from, to repent from that sin. Uh, Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Here in verse 15, there's allusion to the other, uh, another part of the, another uh, person or who of the Trinity is also named the Holy Spirit. Uh, We as believers believe in one God in whom exist three co-equal, co-eternal who's or personages, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, the author here has made much to do of, of God the Son, also God the Father as well. Here in verse 15, he is naming God the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, he says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and then he gives the Holy Spirit credit for what we're calling verse 16 here, which is actually coming from the book of Jeremiah. So we notice uh, the author is is what he's saying is that scripture is not just the thoughts of man. Well, I think God is like this and I think we should live like this and I think this and I'm just going to record this. But what he is saying and what we know to be true is that all scripture is breathed out by God and that God's Holy Spirit uh, was at work through the prophets, through the apostles as the scriptures were recorded. So he gives the Holy Spirit credit for these words that are recorded by the prophet here in Jeremiah. Um, let's continue on down. Uh, Andrew is going to cover this more in the discipleship part in just a moment. But very quickly here, verse 16, uh, he is introducing the new covenant 
We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, there, there are two covenants and only two choices we have to choose from as we look back. We have the covenant of works that God made with Adam and Eve. You know, if you obey, uh, you receive blessings. If you disobey, you receive cursings. It was also made with Moses and Israel. Here's my rules. Here's my law. Obey, you receive blessings. Disobey, you receive cursings. And then we have the covenant of grace where God, the God-man comes, Christ, the Messiah who fulfills God's law perfectly, pays for our sin, and all who trust in Him receive grace, forgiveness forever. So there are only two covenants, and here in verse 16, that is what he is talking about, the new covenant that has come. We'll be celebrating this new covenant. Uh, Easter, uh, Easter 5 o'clock here, just like usual, we'll, be we'll have a regular service, but we'll re be celebrating the new covenant as we take of the Lord's Supper that evening so make sure you come for that we have not had the opportunity to do that in a while so i'm looking forward to that we'll be teaching on that subject some that night as well and looking at what it means this new covenant and how we we use the lord's supper to remember what he has done for us and the blood that was shed to initiate this new covenant that we look to verse 17 then he adds i will remember their sins he's still talking about this new covenant here then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There is a lot there. I encourage you to highlight it. Circle 17 and 18. Look back at it some more later on. A great place to end the service, the sermon tonight. He will remember their sins no more. To know that the very one who created you the one that has the power to send people to hell for eternity, that those who trust in this sacrifice, who trust in this Savior, this new covenant, God remembers their sins no more. Gone, paid for, erased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Forever gone. Uh, verse 18, there is, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. Gone. This is the grace that we live in as a believer, knowing that our sins are forgiven. The penalty has been paid. Christ presented himself as the sacrifice and God remembers our sins no more. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that all who believe in you, that all who trust in Jesus Christ, the one and only method of salvation that you have sent, the Christ, the Messiah, this one who is the high priest, has taken our sins. He has made the ultimate sacrifice, the sacrifice of Himself. He has brought that sacrifice to you and you've accepted that sacrifice. You poured out the wrath for our sin on Him and you give us His righteousness so that we are forever proclaimed as sanctified, holy, set apart, not only in this life, but in the eternity, the lifetime to come. And that we have no fear of facing this judgment because our sins have been paid for by a single sacrifice. We don't contribute to it. Our pockets are empty. What can we do? Nothing. But you have redeemed us. You've bought us back. And we thank you for this covenant of grace that you have made with Christ and all those who will be saved. We thank you for your forgiveness even though we deserve judgment. And we pray if there's anyone at this, in this room that is not trusted in your method of salvation, in Christ as their Savior, 
that even now you would draw them unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.